So within the context of the end of life, that's also what an end of life doula is trying to do, is supporting someone in exploring and talking about what does the end of life mean to that person. Because it's, it's not, you know, an end of life doula isn't just there for death, they're there for this this ending journey, this ending part of a long journey, hopefully a long journey. So it's more about a process and in talking with them about what are their hopes, dreams, ideals, what are they leaving behind, and then, and then helping them think about choice and options and how would you want your deathbed to look like? Who would you want to be there? What would you want the energy of that to be like? And, and then trying to support them in, in actually sort of, you know, like facilitating that a little bit as, as much as we, you know, as humans can. Today's episode is a special one. We are bringing you a conversation with Liz Baer, acupuncturist and co-founder of Capital Integrative Health, and Nicole Hybrader, a birth and death doula. Here is Liz Baer to tell you more about this episode. Hi everyone, I'm excited to bring you this conversation with Nicole Hybrider. Nicole is a birth and death doula who helps humans take their first breath and hold the hands of those who are breathing their last. Nicole is the owner of Graceful Fusion, which is dedicated to training, equipping, and empowering resilient doulas whose love for all stages of life shines from the inside out. This is a beautiful conversation with Nicole about her role as a birth and death doula. We talk about the experiences that led Nicole to become a doula and how she supports her clients using her empowerment, her presence, and education. We also talk about what you can do if someone in your life needs support through birth or death. We hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Nicole. I've been excited to have this conversation with you for a long time, actually, probably since I met you and then years before when I first heard about the kind of work that you do. Yeah, thank you. It's a great privilege to be here. I'm really grateful for it, so thanks. Um, I think, you know, your life is so interesting to me, actually, because you've been working at these two places, that these two massive transition points uh, that all human beings experience, which is the coming into this world and the leaving this world. Um, But maybe you could tell us a little bit about sort of how you got here and how what led you to do this kind of incredible, <laughs> incredible work? Yeah, um, it's you know every every time I'm interviewed by someone, yeah. I'm I'm always reflecting on how challenging it is for me to share the story because the story is like many heroines and heroes' journey is mm-hmm. is all about these twists and turns and meeting the right person at what turned out to be the right time but I didn't know that at the time right so it's um so yeah I'm always thinking of like how to share this story more so um well I can begin with saying that I was I now say one of those sort of lucky people that had many people in my life close to me die when I was younger um from the time I was eight until 18 I had um, several friends die in sudden car accidents, two grandparents die, um, a friend commits suicide who I was his final phone call, um, a boy I was sort of dating, I mean, and by dating I mean hanging out and listening to music with each other, 
um, died in a sudden car accident. So there, there were a lot of deaths in, in my teenage years. And I didn't really have anyone to talk to about that. I was in a family where there was sort of like, don't talk, don't tell, don't explore, don't talk about emotions. And also within the context of my hometown, there really wasn't any talking about those things. And, um, and then I moved to New York City in my early 20s, and I was doing Five Rhythms dance. And at one of the dance classes, I saw this flyer for um, this weekend kind of retreat workshop on death and dying. And I just was like, I need that. I want to do that, like whatever that is. Little did I know that that, that that workshop was being taught by someone named Roshi Joan Halifax, whom you know I consider to be like a high priestess on this planet. And I just was this like straight out of the cornfields 22 year old who didn't who had no idea of her context and how much that would actually be woven into my life in the next like 22 years to come um so i i took this uh training with her that was very helpful for me in talking about and processing some of those deaths that had taken place and then my life went about as as normal and then in my mid-twenties, through a series of strange events, I found myself in Sumatra after the Asian tsunami, volunteering with a local NGO. And I met a midwife who invited me to a birth. And I went to it, and, and my life was forever changed. I felt, um, yeah, I felt like the universe like opened up to me and showed me its secret. And um, and that was sort of the beginning of like an existential crisis of my own of like, okay, so that birth was so beautiful and I, I want to be at more births, but I have this other career. And so like, what do I do? Like, I'm not sure how to make sense of that, which, which ends up being important in my story because really being at that birth instigated me navigating one of one of my f kind of second big life transitions and um, I did eventually switch to being a birth worker and that wasn't an easy um, jump to make but I felt so compelled in my heart to do that and then which is true for most birth workers that it's not really possible to attend births and to also not attend deaths as a part of it because not all mothers make it not all babies make it and within the first three months of attending births i was at a birth where a woman had given birth and then um started to quickly bleed out and the doctors were scrambling trying to stop that bleeding but it eventually sort of became obvious that they weren't going to be able to stop it. And I, I didn't really know what to do. At that point in time, I didn't really have much of any, I had very minimal training. Um, so I just sort of scooped one arm underneath her and then tried to hold her while she finished dying. And that was a very, um, sort of pivotal experience in, in my own life as a person, as a woman, as a birth worker, as someone who knew that likely I would be at more deaths, but I didn't understand what that meant in that moment. Um, the thing that I remember most about that moment was 
was how beautiful she she was just as a person. She was a, a very beautiful woman, and the terror in her eyes, l looking over at her baby, and 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 like kind of. I mean, I I can only assume like, as it was slowly dawning on her that the that they weren't able to stop the bleeding. And then, and then just sort of how much she like tucked her head towards mine. That was this like lasting thing that I that I remember. Because again, I didn't really know if I was doing the right thing, but I did something. So yeah, so early on in my birth career, death was this, death was a part of that path. Um, and it's just sort of stayed that way. So then eventually I went to nursing school and while I was in nursing school, I um, was a part of and witnessed several deaths in a hospital that r really um, didn't sit right with me. Immediately after nursing school, I worked as an ER nurse <laughs> doing the night shift in DC, which I don't recommend to anybody <laughs> to do. And, and further still there, I was a part of many deaths that just seemed cold and sterile. And I always sort of had this thought in my mind, like, I'm sure that that person never visioned that they'd be dying like that. That, that they they're just always seemed to, um, this sort of like disconnect that was there. And so that kind of planted the seed that maybe someday I would work as a hospice nurse. But in my mind, I thought that I was gonna work as a labor and delivery nurse and work as a midwife, because birth was my thing. Um, and I thought, okay, at the end of my life, I'll be a hospice nurse, you know, like when, I, when I'm close to retirement, like I'll do that then. And then I stopped working as an ER nurse and started working as a labor and delivery nurse. And there were a series of things that happened in my work environment that then I decided to take a pause from working as a, as a labor and delivery nurse and started working as a hospice nurse. And I loved it. I just was instantly like a fish in water. And, and while I was working as a hospice nurse, I was very clear that in these strange ways that a lot of the skills that I had gained over the 10 years of being a birth worker, a birth doula, and a labor and delivery nurse were so translatable to the end of life. And then that kind of started connecting these dots for me of like, oh, I've sort of been on this journey for a long time, but I didn't realize that I was. And um, yeah, well, and then I just sort of had my own inner experience of wanting to be committed to, to working in birth and death side by side and focusing myself and my career and my soul on the ways in which that I see those two realms as parallel and, and how can I support them and how can I, um, how can I teach and share information with others that can also support those great transitions. Wow, that's incredible. So, love hearing that story, Nicole. Sorry, I hope I didn't talk no, to you. I hope I, it was yeah, I it was wonderful. No, it was wonderful. There's so many little pieces that I want to touch on. Um, yeah. One that one that I think is sort of useful as a frame up is if you could describe 
to me, you know, what's what's the difference between so I hear hospice nurse and labor and delivery nurse, and then I hear yeah. birth doula and then death doula. What's the difference between the two? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so one can say that no matter what kind of doula we're talking about, whether it's abortion doula, birth doula, end of life doula, there, there are now fertility doulas, that it, it's a term used to describe a support role that is not focused on medical interventions and medical advice. And so one of the things that for me has become very clear is how much our medical system and how much our um, society focuses on and talks about birth and death as physical journeys. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's sort of this adage of like, well, as long as the mother and baby are alive and then, then, you know, like then it was, then it was a good birth and same with death. As long as this person that died in the ICU or that died in the ER or at home had a pain-free death, then, then that's sort of this like benchmark of like, okay, well, at least they had a pain-free death, which for me very clearly is woefully neglectful and, and sort of harmful and kind of gross that, that we let that be taught in medical school and in nursing school in that vein. Because it's, it's reductive and it's, it's actually damaging to the person that's giving birth and the person that's dying and it's, it's also damaging to the providers that are in the room with those people to view it and to teach it as a, as a reductive experience, this like physical thing. So I find that the, the, the kind of emergence or let's say re-emergence of the doula role was from a group of people that were sort of intuitively feeling like, yeah, there's actually more to birth than just the baby and the birthing person being alive at the end, because it's also the spiritual and emotional and psychosocial journey that 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 birthing person is on and also that that new human that that soul is on within the portal of birth and same thing with death that that it's not just that that person is physically letting go of their of their body but they're also coming to a reckoning of who they are what their relationships are and 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 to that end I can say that as a medical provider as a nurse I'm, I'm, I don't always have the time and the capacity to sit with someone in those non-physical realms and to help them explore that. And so, so birth doulas kind of emerge on the scene as someone who can explore with a birthing person, how are you feeling? What are your desires? What are your fears? The other thing that a doula role does is um, really there's sort of two things that I teach in my trainings. Um, and again, this is true no matter what kind of doula we're talking about, but that their role helps to slow things down and helps people think about choice and options, which our medical system is horrific at doing. Our medical system does not slow things down and it does not remind individuals that they have choice and options that can reflect them as a human being. So, so, so a birth doula help someone prepare for their birth, envisioning what would a, what is a good birth look like to you? Like, how do you even define a good birth? Um, 
and and then is there as a physical presence to help try to reach for that and try to achieve that. I mean, there's there's so many other things, so we can't guarantee it, but we try to. So within the context of the end of life, that's also what an end of life doula is trying to do, is supporting someone in 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 exploring and talking about what does the end of life mean to that person, because it's it's not, you know, an end of life doula isn't just there for death. They're there for this this ending journey, this ending part of a long journey, hopefully a long journey. So it's more about a process and in talking with them about what are their hopes, dreams, ideals, what are they leaving behind, and then and then helping them think about choice and options and how would you want your deathbed to look like? Who would you want to be there? What would you want the energy of that to be like? And and then trying to support them in and actually sort of, you know, like facilitating that a little bit as much as we you know as humans can it sounds like it sounds a lot like the doula is like part coach part like spiritual guide part therapist um you know and and really meeting all these needs that are you know maybe someone can find with a partner potentially like if you have like a a partner when you're that you're giving birth with or you're in a household that's um, connected with your dying process and that mm-hmm. they're a- even able to be available to talk about these things because I think a lot of people family members may not even be available to talk yes. about the well, realities of death right so the yeah. doula comes in and and fills in these these spots that are um, are not really met by our medical establishment, our medical establishment, and maybe not even um, able to be met by the people who are kind of closest to us because they're exactly. so close to the situation. Well, that's right, and that and that's sort of what I've seen time and time again. And also acknowledging that your closest loved one may have an intention and a desire to step into that supportive role, but they're also going through their own emotional journey right. that they have to that they don't have to, but but that they're navigating and digesting and trying to metabolize. And, and I, I, I sort of try making this analogy of like, um, like going on, I don't know, trekking in Nepal, uh, going on some kind of, like wild camping adventure into a really intense forest that you've never been in. It's like, yes, you, you could do all of the research by yourself, read the books, read, read websites, and then, and then plot your own course up Annapurna and then do that. Or you could also talk to some people that have, that have done it before that have actually done that trek, that have maybe been Sherpas for other people. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you have to hire them, but like you can talk to other people that may have some feedback, some insights, some best practices, some a bit of mentorship to share about that. 
And the reality is that that is actually how our society used to function, was that that kind of sharing of information and mentorship was kind of a part of, like a part of the gig of being mm -hmm. a human. So, you know, 100, 120 years ago, you and I would have grown up seeing an aunt or a cousin or two or a neighbor um, giving birth. What is it like in those first two, three days postpartum? What is it? What is a two day postpartum, you know, new human being like? And um, what is that bleeding like? What What is that breastfeeding like? What are what is just we would have been exposed to that. And similarly, we would have been exposed to witnessing our parents maybe show up for the neighbor or an aunt, that an, uh, an uncle, a cousin, someone who lived physically close to our house. We would have just seen, oh, this is how a community shows up. This is how you support someone. This is this is the kind of normal family fights that, that kind of take place. And and, the, and this is, these are the many shades of grief that, that people go through. And we would have had a normalization of all of that, such that when it came our time to give birth, or when it came our time to bury our parents, we actually would have had like a better idea of what to do. We wouldn't have just sort of be like kind of fumbling in the dark. But because of the process of the sort of industrial complex of hospitals and and the way that our medical system has um, expanded and our own psyches and obsession with youth and ability and fear of old age and fear of disability. So it's, it's a confluence of many things that then has separated us as, as average citizens from these experiences of birth and death. So a lot of us just don't have a lot of experience in that. We, like, we, do, we, do, we never got the mentorship. We never got the exposure through osmosis of how to step into those spaces. So I also think that the doula role is this kind of ancient role. I mean, let's be honest, like there's, there are hieroglyphics in Egypt of like, you know, clearly a person that was likely a type of midwife kneeling in front of someone giving birth and then that person had their arms around two maidens by their side so it's not like we've created anything we just as a society sort of got off course with our obsession with technology and modernity and i think that there's an awareness by many of us that 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 I don't even know, I don't want to say that we need to get back on course, but that we need to chart yet another different course. Do you, um, I mean, I don't know much of the history of, of this kind of work, but it seems like not even, not even like 100 years ago, maybe even like 75 years ago, we were in such a different place with birth and death than we are now. And... Um, you know, they used to, you, I remember my, like, hearing, even, I think probably even my dad talking about um, growing up and, like, the aunt was in the parlor, you know, for everybody to kind of come and visit over a period of time. And we were much more accustomed to just even having it around and, yes. and understanding that 
it was that it really was a part of life and now like so many things we've really outsourced it yes likely like you were saying because of our own um well because of our own discomfort with what what is so truly inevitable yeah well well i think again i it's a you know it's um it's the web that has no weaver it's that concept of like it's it's so it's a it's such a confluence of so many things right. so i think it's it's modernity it's technology that has then removed us from like being with blood and taking care you know of our elders and wiping their feces and giving them the bed baths and now we hire people to do that or we place them in a nursing home I mean, which again i guess is hiring some someone to do that but so there's a real sort of physical distance. <clears throat> also, modern psychology, for a while, you know, people like um, like Freud, which you know, gave many beautiful contributions, but also, let's be honest, just was like a didn't do a lot of favors to especially women and to I think much of society. A brilliant human being. But he, you know, he was sort of the person that was like, okay, once someone dies, like, then don't talk about them, don't explore that, like, you just cut that off. And then that kind of became this pervasive way of dealing even with grief. Um, so, anyways, so, yes, yeah, so I think we've just distanced ourselves and distanced ourselves and distanced ourselves. And... And I think also we as a society, something that that I really see, which I which I don't understand where this desire came from, or I, I don't I don't understand where things shifted, but we also live in the society of how much people just want to defer to someone who they think knows more than them. So, you know, th- there's this there's this thing that I see for, for people in labor and, and also sometimes people that are getting close to the end of life of this like, well, whatever my doctor says, you know, like then, then, I'll, then I'll do. And, and also this sort of like, like thinking that you got saved in, in the hospital, like, like for a lot of birthing people, especially who have a hospital-based birth, they may, I know this as a labor and delivery nurse, that, you know, we cause qu- quite a lot of problems sometimes just by our routine interventions that we're doing. And, and, then, we, and then we save the woman at the end of the day. And then we save the birthing person at the end of the day. And so then they're walking around with this narrative of like, well, thank God that, um, you know, that they, that they did that emergency C-section. Thank God that... Um, yeah, that they were there to, yeah, to get my baby out in whatever emergency way that they did. While meanwhile, I know that a little bit of how they ended up in that emergency C-section or that emergency situation was because of unnecessary interventions. And that is also massively true at the end of life. That, and, and, I, and, and we know this through, like, through statistics and through research, but like, you know, the amount of money through through Medicare that is spent in the last year of someone's life on unnecessary interventions that don't actually prolong 
life and that certainly don't prolong quality of life is astronomical in a sort of an, epi an epidemic, I would say, in our, within our medical system. But despite the fact that we have evidence that shows that, there still is this thing of like, okay, well, well, well if my doctor is saying, yeah, like do, do yet another round of chemo, or if my doctor is saying, get yet another valve replaced, th like, then I'm gonna do that. Because there's this, I, again, I don't know what it is, but I, I, I just, I see it, that there's this feeling to want to defer to somebody else that, that we think or we hope knows more than us. And I think, yeah, for sure. And I think too is, you know, <clears throat> well, you would know this way better than I would, but I, I, I wonder, I guess is a better way to put it. And for a few people who I've seen at the end of their life, um, that there can be, there can be like a kind of like a peacefulness, like, okay, I kind of got this, I'm, it's gonna be okay. And then as it gets closer and closer, there's like, wait a minute, no, 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 I'm pissed, I don't want this. So, you know, there's yeah. that pull between what we as human beings, you know, life is amazing, and it's also, let's face it, it's hard. Yes. <laughs> and I think as we start to see it slip from our grasp, there can be such a desperation. Completely. To hold on, even if it's, a lot of times it's like I think individually done, but then you also have pressure from family yeah. too, to yeah. keep going, to keep fighting, keep fighting, keep fighting. There was a person who I know who I worked with who um, she, she just decided to stop. Mm -hmm. And I saw such a, her interventions, and I saw such a peacefulness come over her with that decision, even though it was very difficult for her whole family, you know. So I wonder, you know, how does a death doula fit in into these different processes? Where yeah. does one call one in, and yeah. can they help smooth that over for the family and create alignment between the family and the person who's dying? Yeah, well, we can try. We're, we're not family <laughs> therapists, <laughs> but yes. And, you know, and families are families, like as Tolstoy, you know, explain to us all families are dysfunctional in their own in their own way. Um, so, so, so I so I work as an end of life doula, and I teach people how to be end of life doulas through an organization named Enelda. And the way that we kind of envision the end of life doula role is what we call in a three phase model. So the first, the first phase of the model is meeting someone and really just hearing their story. And you're hearing their story about the disease, the journey of the disease, where and how they've gotten to this point in time. Then you shift a little bit and you're hearing their story, their life story. So who are they? Who have they been? During the various years of their life, who and what were their loves? their heartaches, their sorrows, their, their, their major lessons, their, their major contributions of, of, of what they leave behind them. And then ideally from that conversation, which is, an, which is a sort of like an internal exploration that you as the end of life doula are kind of helping someone do. And the hope is that out of that internal 
exploration that then there's an external manifestation of working on some kind of legacy project. And by a legacy project, it could be as simple as writing some letters to, you know, to loved ones. It could be a plaque on a bench in your favorite park. It could be a book of recipes that you leave behind. It could be a quilt. It could be video montages. It could be audio recordings to be played at, you know, certain pivotal times for your children that you're leaving behind. It, it can, I don't know, it, it, could, it could be leaving money to some institution, you know, really could be anything. And so that's kind of like the first phase of the end-of-life doula role. And then the second part is helping that person explore what would be a, a vision of a good death for them. So who would be there? What would it be like? Um, the music, the lighting, the energy, the, the place in their home or, the, or, the, or someplace else where it would take place. And, and then kind of trying to get that down and then helping to get their caretakers, their loved ones, family or chosen family, kind of all on board on that. And, and how can we kind of best set ourselves up to approximate this kind of end of life plan? And then, and then the end of life doula would kind of be on call and would try to help support that plan. Sitting vigil, sitting at the deathbed. And then after the death has taken place, then the end-of-life doula meets with the loved ones for maybe two or three visits that are really just about reprocessing the death. You know, this sort of like, well, I know that I was there a little bit throughout this journey, but what was it like for you as the primary caretaker? What has been your emotional journey? And, and that's really about using narrative therapy and kind of integration, so sort of... Um, yeah, so, so helping someone process the, 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 the final month and the death and kind of supporting them a little bit on their grief journey. Although I just want to emphasize that end-of-life doulas in general are not like licensed grief therapists or you know, trained in that way. So it's really about this reprocessing of the death experience. So that's sort of the, the three-phase model, if you will, of what an end-of-life doula can offer. And then the way that that looks really depends on, I would say, the end-of-life doula and, and the situation. So there are some end-of-life doulas out there that are like so creative and amazing, and they really kind of focus quite a lot more on like a legacy project and sort of like elaborate sort of like vigil kind of parties and, you know, rituals and that kind of stuff. Then there are other end-of-life doulas I know that are a lot more into narrative therapy and really almost help their clients sort of almost come up with like um, an end-of-life autobiography in a way. So so there's different end-of-life doulas that, that, that kind of bring a different skill set. So the way that it might look is going gonna, is gonna to be a bit different depending on, that, on the unique skills of that end-of-life doula. The other thing that can really make a difference is when, you, when the end-of-life doula is hired. So sort of to answer kind of part two of your question, there really is no... There, re there really is, is no like average of when the end-of-life doula comes on the scene. I have been hired a week before someone dies. I've also been hired by, um, by several women who have metastatic breast cancer, you know, 
BRCA, like, I mean, you know, that are given a very limited prognosis, six months, but they, the, the person diagnosed with the breast cancer then hires me as an end-of-life doula, but also says, just so you know, like I'm also doing treatments and I'm, you know, I'm going to do the full range of surgery, chemo, radiation in hopes that I can lengthen my life and, and not die in six months. And I've had two clients that have had that and like, they're more active at this point than I am. Like they're on vacation, they're like, you know, they're walking about planet Earth as though they don't have cancer. So with those two women in particular, you know, we, we did a life review, we talked about a legacy project, they engaged in their legacy project, and then we also created a loose kind of vigil plan of what their deathbed would look like, but never enacted it because they're still very much alive and thriving. So, so the, the range of when an end-of-life doula would come into the picture can look very, very different depending on that end-of-life doula and then, and then the, the person that's, that's dying. And then um, I also work in D.C. as an end-of-life doula supporting people doing medical aid and dying. So, um, which I don't, do you want to? Oh, I'd love to talk about that, okay. but I have a question. Yeah, first, I don't want to. Which is, um, do you see, I know you're just referring to these two women with uh, metastatic breast cancer. Is there, um, it sounds to me strangely empowering to create this sort of idea. I mean, a lot of times we're planning our funerals, you know what I mean? Like, this is what I want on my funeral, and I'm gonna get that in my will, and blah, 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 blah. Or your, you know, what is it, like your DNR, your sort of like living yes. will kind of thing. Um, but this sounds just so empowering. Um, like, with a terminal illness that maybe gives you like 20 years or yeah. you know, 10 years or 20 years or whoever, <laughs> but that you're in a way like front-loading a lot of this, you're going into the the sort of the deepest reality of your situation and you're facing it and creating a structure and creating a connection with it. I, I just wonder um, if you have any sense that that, is something that's healing for the person that even allows them to live more with what they're living with. Well, I don't know if it I don't know if it yields to them living more, but I but I know that it's very it's deeply meaningful to them because because part of <clears throat> part of the experience of giving birth and also of, of knowing that you're going to die, of knowing that you have a diagnosis that is life-limiting, is being confronted with the reality that you don't have control over anything and you don't have control over your body, that, that, um, which is humbling as F-U-C-K. It's, yeah. very, it's very humbling. Because we mo we live in a society sort of that predicates on this like illusion of control, illusion of plans, you know, and and so when someone gets a gets a diagnosis and a disease, there's this emotional and spiritual thing that I've seen that then life gets very small and smaller and smaller, which is also true when you're in a caretaking role that just life just gets very small, 
And I think what happens when people engage in these kind of imagining and envisioning what their deathbed could look like and what could be a legacy project, that it gives them it gives them a small ounce of control over something. It gives them a small ounce of control over what the vision might be. And it allows them to also engage in something that might reflect them as an individual. Because so much of what happens when you have a disease, you have to start relying on people. <laughs> you have to start realizing that you can't do what you used to do. Your identity, you have to let go of your identity of being strong and independent. There's just, there's just so much that gets taken away from you, or that gets taken away from a person when they have a disease and they are facing the true end of their life. And so what I see, the sort of thinking about a vigil plan and thinking about a legacy project is that it, it, it gives them a little something while they're while so much of their life is about being forced to let go that makes a lot of sense yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah it's just so hard being a human <laughs> yeah, that's true do um do death doulas are, are they do they attend deaths mm -hmm. yes yeah, so is that pretty typical pretty typical that the end of life doula um would loosely be living within an on-call life to try to be there so that they can come and support the caretakers and loved ones to be at the bedside for those final hours of life. Although, but I, but it is, but um, it's, it's not like birth doulas in that sense where that's sort of like one of the main goals of a birth doula is to be there for the sure. birth. So I would say it's not like that at the end for being an end of life doula, that that isn't our main goal, but that can be a hope that you can be there because death is so much more unpredictable than birth is. So um, I think many end-of-life doulas try to, but also make it very clear to the loved ones that that may not happen. So then our goal is to set them up very well so that they, they kind of know what is the plan for the death, what is the plan for the vigil, so that, uh, yeah, that, there's, that they can feel independent and confident. Got it, got it. Um, I'm wondering about, you know, we we're going to talk about a little bit about medical aid. Um, would you share with us a little what that looks like and what the options are and yeah. the legalities and all this kind of stuff? Yes. Um, I'm very happy to and very, very proud to because, um, so within Washington, D.C., it is legal to elect to end one's life with medical aid and dying, which I'm very proud of because many years ago when we were advocating and talking to our um, DC government about making that legal, I was one of the few nurses that was involved in that movement and that testified in front of the DC council. So it's very cool for me to have been a part of the advocacy to get that policy to become legal and then to now be able to work with people at the bedside that are actually able to have a compassionate death because of that. So I just, I'm, it's like, I'm very proud of that. And I, I, I love being able to do that because I, I, 
after having been an activist for many, many years, it's very rare to actually ever get policy to really change, let alone to get it to change in your lifetime and then to actually get to like work in that. So um, medical aid in dying is a process by which, very similar to hospice, two physicians are able to assess and determine that someone has a life-limiting disease that left to advance on its own would cause distress, harm, pain, um, and um, I'm, I'm, there's a word I want to use that isn't coming to me, but, but basically that this person who has a life-limiting disease is, is in the realm of suffering. And so as medical providers, it actually should be our responsibility to work with them on any and all options to end their suffering. So of course, in an ideal world, we do that through palliative care. We do that through pain management. But as, as you and I both know that there are some forms of, of pain that, we, that, that are very, very, very difficult to treat. An example of that being um, once cancer spreads to someone's bones, to their skeletal structure, and 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 um, um, and spreads, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, that that bone pain is 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 very difficult to treat with pharmaceuticals. It's difficult to treat with CBD. Difficult to treat with THC. It's just it's a known challenge to treat that kind of pain. Um, so, so in any case, when someone feels, okay, I have this terminal disease, I do feel like right now I'm in the realm of suffering, and the reality is that it is likely going forward that I will only suffer even more, they can seek out a physician to help support them in this. Two physicians have to agree that, that this person is in the realm of suffering. And then they will write a prescription for a cocktail of medication that is then dispersed to the patient and then the patient can choose their own day and time of death to drink that concoction of medication um, at at their home. And they're usually attended, I, I imagine, by someone? Well, so that's a great question and, and sort of just speaks to how sort of ridiculous our medical system is in America. Um, So within the, I believe there are now eight states in America where medical aid and dying is legal. And in most of those, actually in all of the states, in the laws that are written, there is nothing written that, um, that would cover or that encourages there to be a nurse or a physician at the bedside. So in most of the states, these, these people and their loved ones are left to do it alone. They're left to like mix the drug by themselves and then take it by themselves and then sit and watch sometimes these side effects and to assess, like to read a piece of paper and be like, well, is this normal? Should we, should we do something? Which I think is just, is like just so wrong. I, that is like so, so, so wrong. So, so there is a, a movement then of, of many end of life doulas um, that are wanting to support people in those moments. So who will come on the day when someone chooses to drink the concoction and sit with them, sit by the bedside and, and, and support the loved ones that are there and also to support the person that has drank the concoction because there, 
it isn't always smooth and you know there can be little side effects that come up and there are comfort measures there are ways of handling those in the moment and also why do we have this expectation that people should give birth or, or like or die by themselves or you know like well you know that family should just deal with it by themselves in the house by themselves why do we believe the kids should be raised that way like well you know that couple should just do it by themselves in a house by themselves like all of these things it's like the older I get I just realize how insane they are that we have this this way of separating our humanness from each other's humanness so so there are many end-of-life doulas that will go and sit by the bedside I just as a side note to this I do predict that in the next probably five ten years that there will be more hospices that will get on board and will try to support more people and sending a nurse or, or sending um, someone from the hospice staff to be at the bedside when people are drinking the medication. But as of right now, that is not the case. Are you allowed to do it in nursing homes? I guess it's probably nursing, if it's like legal in your area. Exactly. It, they, it's a state. It would be allowed to be done in a It's a state mm-hmm. um, designation. Wow, it's so fascinating. <laughs> it's like this subject, I feel like we could go on and on and on. And um, there's really one one last thing that I'd love to learn about from you. So I, what I'm hearing is the um, is we can't do it alone. We all need help. Like we need connection. We need the collective to show up for each other throughout life and especially at these big transition moments. Um, I'm also hearing too that, you know, um, that it would be really nice if some part of that was built into our medical system to be able to, you know, in addition to hospice, but built into to support people at this point, especially if they do medical aid in dying. Um, and then it brings me to something that I know that you're involved in, which is the Death Cafe, mm-hmm. which is like uh, almost like a um, grassroots community organization that yes. helps people who are in the realm of dying. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, I love hosting those, so thank you for asking. So Death Cafes are free, open, public gatherings where where any and all individuals are welcome to sit with each other and have intimate conversations about the many ways that death touches all of our lives. So at, at any one of my death cafes, there could be someone in their 70s who just shows up and is like, you know, I just realized that the next phase of my life is leaving this planet, is le- leaving this realm, and I would just want to be around other people that are talking about that. There could also be someone who's in their 40s and 50s and diagnosed with cancer, so they're, of course, thinking about their own mortality. There, I've, there could be someone in their 30s who's pregnant, who now for the first time is thinking about, oh, shit, I have to actually live. I, like, like now I'm thinking of my own mortality because now I'm responsible for my offspring. Or And then I've had some like another... Um, person from high school who just lost a classmate and doesn't really have other classmates to talk about death and to talk about grief at all. So it's really beautiful to have all of those people, all of those generations 
in a gathering talking about death. And so in, in any death cafe, the conversation is never predetermined. It's always, it always sort of emerges from the collective consciousness of who's, at, of, of, of who's there. So we'll go around the room, people will introduce themselves and express what was their interest in coming to the death cafe. And then from those introductions, there's usually some overlap. And then we'll start there as a way of initiating the conversation. And then it kind of meanders. And we may talk about what does a good death look like? What does a bad death look like? Um, what do we think happens after we die, after we physically die? Um, um, what, why is our society so much death illiterate? So, so the conversations are really kind of anything and everything about death. And they're just magical. They're really, they're really magical to have people from so many different backgrounds sitting and there's something there's something i think inherently vulnerable about talking about one's own mortality that then just lends itself to these really beautiful vulnerable conversations with strangers that i don't think there's a lot of opportunity to have in many other realms in our life so i used to offer those in person before the pandemic and now I offer those virtually through Zoom. They're free and open to the public. So anyone listening to this, you can go to my website. You don't have to sign up for a mailing list, although I hope you sign up for a mailing list, but you can just access the Zoom link even on my website. So I, I, I really, as a, for me, I feel that that's part of my community activism and community in, engagement in just being someone that's trying to to instigate more conversations about our mortality and, and about who we are and, and how mortality plays a role in all of our lives. Oh, thanks. Will you, um, do you mind taking a moment and letting us know how people can get in touch with, with you and even also find resources about um, death and dying or death yes. doula Yes, yes. Um, the, the main way to get in touch with me and to really find anything and everything out is through my website, which is gracefulfusion.com. Again, gracefulfusion.com. And from that, you can find information about the, the end-of-life doula trainings that I do, the birth doula trainings that I do, the death cafes that I, that I host. And also, if you're looking for someone, if you're looking for an end-of-life doula to support you with medical aid and dying, you can find ways of hiring me through that. Um, and additionally, in the past like four or five years, I have been doing more trainings on being um, a grief facilitator. And so it's not yet really apparent on my website. I, I still have to update it. Um, but I I do personally sort of see my work as, a, as an end-of-life doula kind of going forward, maybe doing a little bit less of working with people um, as a traditional end-of-life doula, but more getting into working as a grief facilitator and kind of helping people with some of the anticipatory grief that comes with having a life-limiting disease and then also with their loved ones after they've lost someone. So one more thing that I would love to share is that I'm currently working on creating a course um, and the working title of it is called The End of Life.
fucked up families, but I'm probably going to change it to being the end of life for dysfunctional families. But the, the course is going to be about some skills and best practices for helping people that come from dysfunctional families navigate that so that they don't walk away with more harm and more trauma. And then also after the death has taken place, kind of how to process that because I, well, I also come from a very dysfunctional family and, and I know how the epicness and the intensity of energy of losing a loved one permanently to death can really instigate a lot of those old wounds and old dynamics and old projections and, and old hurts that, that are inherent in family dynamics. And I, I'm, I'm just, I'm so excited about creating this and I can't wait to sort of like share it. And I, I really see that as a, as, as a lot of what my work is gonna be doing going forward. Thanks for sharing about your course. It sounds really interesting. And I think it's gonna be really needed for a lot of people. And I'm wondering, has that come out of your own experience? Um, I know you were you attended your father's birth. You kind of doula hit doula'd him throughout the whole process, and that um, that your own family has, like we were saying, Tolstoy says, you know, your only family had its own dysfunction. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for asking that. Yes, I was with my my father at his death, and. Um, which was a beautiful experience for me and a gift to be with him. Um, yeah, um, my father was diagnosed with metastatic cancer um, sort of right away. So um, we have no cancer in our family bloodline and no notion that he had cancer. So when he was diagnosed and it was already metastatic, it was already in his spine, it was pretty devastating for, for me, for him, for all of us, because there was sort of an obvious awareness that the prognosis would be, um, yeah, would be short. <clears throat> but, but I didn't realize how short it would be. So he ended up dying within three months of being diagnosed. And that was just such a journey. It was a really challenging journey that that taught me a lot. So one of the things that I learned in that is just how much um, how much are my own family's old dynamics and kind of roles that had been a part of of my childhood, you know, like you have the golden child, you have the black sheep, you have the, the, the funny one who doesn't, who doesn't have to be responsible. I think I had such an awareness of, I hated those roles and I, and I hated the one that I got pigeoned into and how much of my 20s and 30s was a process of me, what I thought was emancipating myself from, from those roles, but of how much once there was this intense diagnosis and the reality that we were gonna lose our patriarch, that those roles and those dynamics, those, those old wounds, those old um, gripes against each other just came to the surface. It also was so apparent 
how my brothers and my mother and I have different coping mechanisms and also have different ways of processing grief. Um, and so I think that that's inherent in any family. I mean, that, I think that's just being a human. You, I mean, you and I have a lot in common, but I'm sure that we grieve and also handle things just differently. Um, but what happened with my father's diagnosis and then his death was how much my family and I clashed over what to do and how much we were not able to really communicate in a way that fostered connection, but rather we were right back into kind of drama and blame and avoidance, triangulation, um, manipulation, and just, and just, and like how painful that was. I, I really, I, I, I was almost like befuddled by it. Like, oh no, how is, how is this happening? I also was aware that even for myself, there were so many times when I was sort of laughing at myself because even I was doing things with my, with my father that I knew, I knew not to do. Mm. But yet, I, in the beginning of his diagnosis, I struggled to accept it. I, I really, um, I really felt like, no, like this is not the right time. This is not when I want to lose him. This is not on, <laughs> this is not on my timeline. This is the wrong script. Someone hand me, someone hand me a different script. Um, and I can see that there are ways in which that, that, that I was like tripping over my own feet. So the other thing that happened around that time was that one of my best friends, her father, was also diagnosed with cancer. And it just was like a tale of two cities, watching our, watching our families go through that. One, because in my family, we have major addictions and I'm, I'm the only one that's ever done therapy and that's ever even read a book about, you know, relationships or attachment style or anything. So I'm in a, I'm in a unit with people that are rather avoidant and not really dealing with themselves. So, so that was sort of one experience. Um, so not only do we have like different family dynamics, but also just different resources and seeing the way that that affected the end of life journey was like astronomical to me. So in my friend's family, you know, they had like group phone calls where they talked to each other. They had aunts and uncles that were helping, that were doing research on finding second, um, what's the word? Opinions? Um, yeah, second mm -hmm. opinions and able to afford to fly to Boston to speak to a different specialist and hiring home health aides to come in and do caretaking. It, and, and all the while, they themselves coordinating their rotation of care so that it wasn't being a burden on any one person. And then compare and contrast to my family where there was blame and disagreement and struggle trying to figure out how to get things paid figuring out what could be paid by Medicare. My father was a military personnel, so we did have military health insurance to cover some things, but not all things. 
and just trying to navigate our healthcare system was a nightmare. And most of that fell on my shoulders. And um, my, my father and my parents live in Southern Illinois. So there was quite a lot of strain on me flying back and forth between DC, teaching workshops, working, then flying back to Illinois, dealing with health insurance, taking care of my parents, trying to be the translator for medical advice and information to get them to understand sort of like what's going on. And I, I think I did as best of a job as I could. And I also could have, you know, I, I think that, um, I also can see ways that I could have done better. And, um, it just, it, it was such a, just going through that with my best friend and kind of watching her family and then experiencing my own family really revealed to me how um, the propensity for more harm that can happen when there's a death that takes place in a, in a, in a family unit. And, it, and it, it isn't also that that had been my only exposure to it, because as a hospice nurse, I saw that daily. It's like I would drive to one house where people are talking to each other and making a plan, and it's like all hands on deck. And then I would drive to another house to see my next patient, and you know, and where maybe they're just alone, and there's like one caretaker who is drowning, and they're not understanding the advice of what's being given to them. So I had witnessed that, but of, but of course I hadn't personally experienced it. And then when I personally experienced it, I realized like, wow, this is, it's really hard. And, and something that was very clear to me was that it took me months, if, if not over a year, um, to have even a semblance of peace over my father's death, not because he died, but because of the level of family dysfunction that was a part of it. It wasn't just that I lost my father, it was that I lost my family. I lost my sense of family and, um, and, and felt more, more sort of deeply alone than I could like fathom feeling. And I don't think I'm unique in that, and I don't think I'm alone in that. And I think that there are a lot of people that experience that. And sadly, what I know to be true is that there are so many books out there that are written about the end of life, you know, Frank Ostaseski and B.J. Miller and just, you know, and all these like famous people and all those books I've read them, you know, all of them talk about, use this as an opportunity to have these conversations with your loved ones that you just hadn't had yet. And you know what? That actually is wildly inappropriate for many families. Mm -hmm. For many families where there is addiction and mental health issues, you actually need to talk and have boundaries. Boundaries around your heart, boundaries around what you're doing, um, boundaries around communication, reaching out for professional help, knowing what that professional help could look like. Because even at my death cafe, I know, like there are people that'll come and they'll talk about, yeah, well, like my brother changed the will at the last minute and 
you know, my the, the stepmom, like the third wife or the third husband, like stole this money and did this thing. I'm like those stories are actually more common than I think any of us realize. And it's very damaging to be writing books about the end of life of like that we're all going to have this like connected kumbaya moment because that actually that actually isn't the case for many families. And and to not acknowledge that only makes those dysfunctional families feel even more alone and more outcast instead of us normalizing it. So what I hear is it really speaks to, again, these places where we need more community so that if you're, if you're not able to process uh, in a way that is helpful in your own family, that there's resources out there, not just books that, again, are talking about like the Kumbaya, but that are um, able to really meet you where you are with folks who are going through the same type of experience. Mm-hmm. Yes. Maybe that's an- another project for you to yes. do. <laughs> well, I, I envisioned that to be part of the, the end Great. of life for dysfunctional families as a part of this course that Fabulous. people can take. And then maybe there would even be sort of like monthly gatherings that are just these drop-in calls where people can talk and process and share um, almost sort of like a specialized death cafe for yeah. people that are that are coming from these dysfunctional families. Yeah. So yeah, and I think and my and a main desire I have is also just simply to normalize that because I I know that for me um coming from a a family where of having a father that was such a such a, a deep alcoholic and workaholic and addictions really rampant in in my family that I as a younger woman I didn't really know how to talk about that with anyone and and it's been a process for me to sort of be like yeah I do come from a family like that and I'm and I'm sure I have mm-hmm. my own issues and I'm also an okay person and I'm yeah. not damaged because I come from a dysfunctional family yeah so so I want to gift that sort of normalization yeah. to other people as well. Yeah, that's wonderful. Thank you for that. Yeah. One last thing to touch on um, is, can you describe to me what a good death looks like? Mm. That's a great question. I want to say in some ways, no, I can't describe it because I think it's so mutable and shifting and changing and person and like special to the person that is dying um but to that end i would say some elements of it is that the death reflects the human being that the death reflects the individual that someone gets to leave this life feeling connected to others, feeling cared for and feeling loved, which is so difficult to really feel. I do think some people want to die in a room by themselves. I I think there are some people who don't want their spouse or their children or their parents by their side. They, They want to cross that threshold unwatched so I don't think it has to be with loved ones sitting beside them. But I, but I also believe you can be in a room alone and not feel lonely. So, so I would say 
that the dying person doesn't feel lonely or alone. They may physically be so, but that that isn't like their emotional experience of it. Um, that it can be in a room, in a building, in a house, in an apartment that someone feels comfortable in. I think that that really makes a difference. I've supported so many people dying at home and and many of them, even if, even if they have like um, a hospital bed that was delivered to their home, you know, that has like the machine that helps it incline and decline and all that, you know, many of them just want to die like in their recliner that, that, that like that they love, that's worn, that their body fits comfortably in, which I, I find very poignant and very beautiful. So this sense of, of physical comfort and, and that there can be, that there can be music and that there can be things spoken to them that are meaningful to them. And, and for some people that that's having loved ones sit in prayer and meditation by their love, by, by their bedside. And for others, maybe that's having Mary Oliver poetry read to them. For others, maybe that's having excerpts of the Quran or the King James Bible read to them. But that there are meaningful words or meaningful silence that they're surrounded by, I think, is also important. Um, yeah, I, again, as I said, I, I, for me, it is somewhat of a hard question to answer because I think it's so unique and so personal you know and I would even say like for me if if I were to if I if I were to be dying soon um, as you know an important thing to me would be to have Hermes and Apollo my cats by my side they're such gifts to my life and I just I feel their love and and our connection and um I think for a lot of people, the animal kingdom, our, our pets, are are powerful allies to help us transition over. So I, I would also include that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Well, thanks so much, Nicole, for being here. It's such a pleasure to talk to you, and thanks for all the work that you're doing for very vulnerable people, mm -hmm. but very important parts of their life journey. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Yeah. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I'm appreciative of the way you are living your life. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you for taking the time to listen to us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please take a moment to leave us a review. It helps our podcast to reach more listeners. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episodes and conversations. And thank you so much again for being with us.